0: The passage we'll be looking through this morning is Judges two ten through 16. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to their plunders who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. May God bless the reading of His word.
1: Well, pastors Josh and Paul are at the Anchored in Truth Missions Conference in Alabama this morning. So... Let's keep them in prayer that they'd be renewed and refreshed and encouraged to carry on the work of the ministry. Let's also pray as we go to God's word. Lord, your word reminds us what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God, as we come to your word this morning, search our hearts convict us of our own sin and idolatry, and cause us to keep silent before you. Amen. Well, if you've ever had the pleasure in the refreshing boredom of your shower routine to read the directions upon your shampoo bottle, as I have, you might come across the words, lather, rinse, and repeat. And the most crucial word in that instructive sentence is the word repeat. Because no matter the quality, no matter the quantity of shampoo that you use in that particular instance, the cycle bears repeating. In today's text, we see another cycle that happens over and over again. Unfortunately, unlike shampooing, this is a cycle that does not bear repeating. It is the downward cycle of sin. Equally unfortunate is the fact that this is a cycle that God's people continuously fell into across the span of the Old Testament canon. It's a cycle we have all fallen into. Like sand in a car after a day at the beach, sin was everywhere. Sin is everywhere. You can't get it out, so to speak. Also unfortunate is the fact that this was not only a problem for Israel, but for all peoples in all times. Which brings us to our main idea this morning, that entertaining even a hint of sin has the potential to lead to a vicious downward cycle of sin that has dire consequences. Now God had brought Israel into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and according to verse 7, of chapter 2, in Judges, it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But when that generation died and were gathered to their fathers, verse 10 says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. These were a people who walked by sight, and not by faith. And so begins the cycle of sin that we see in the second part of verse 10 all the way into verse 16. And this cycle, again, is not limited by time. It's not limited by place. It's not limited by people. It is the way of all of those who have forgotten or who have never known the Lord and his great work. And the first step in that cycle is a distrust of God as we see In verses 10 through 13. Again, second part of verse 10 says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. So despite the faithfulness here of this previous generation in following the Lord, it seems that perhaps there's some failure on their part to train up the next generation. Deuteronomy 6 had clearly taught them to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and with all of their soul and with all of their might and to teach all that He had commanded them to their children. Now, perhaps the previous generation did teach. Maybe they did teach. Maybe it was taught and not caught. Or perhaps it was not taught. Pastor and author John Piper says to not teach is to teach plenty. To not teach is to teach plenty. Silence about Christ is dogma, meaning that if we're not instructing our children in the things of the Lord, we are teaching them that God and his ways are unimportant and non essential. To not teach is to teach plenty. Now whether the previous generation taught or not, The results are clear. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So it seems there's some historic amnesia among the people of this generation. Did they not know what happened to their forebears who had worshipped Baal as recorded in Numbers 25? 24,000 people died in a plague after having incited the Lord to anger for their worship of Baal. But this current generation's disobedience did not begin with the worship of false gods. Their disobedience began with their failure to purge the wicked people from the land and break down their altars, which we see earlier in the chapter. Now, Baal in Hebrew means lord or husband. Later in the book of Hosea, even elsewhere in the Old Testament, God compares his relationship with his people to a marriage relationship. But Israel had exchanged one husband They'd exchanged one lord for another. Baal was the storm god, the one who had supposedly brought rain to the land of Canaan. He was represented by an upright stone or just a lifeless rock. Ashtaroth was the goddess of love and war. She was Baal's spouse. She was represented as a carved female figure. In Canaanite religion, the land's fertility depended upon the sexual relationship between these two gods. Canaanite men would frequent cult shrines, having relations with cult prostitutes in order to encourage or excite the gods to bring rain for their crops. A perversity that the Israelites tolerated despite clear commands from God to the contrary. Now, perhaps that tolerance could be chalked up to just a complacent pragmatism, Perhaps they thought, well, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe Baal and Ashtaroth have something to do with it. I mean, our God had us in the desert until recently. Besides, our God is kind of strict and exacting. These gods are not very strict and they're fairly easy to tolerate. Perhaps it appealed to their more base nature. Whatever the reason, Israel tolerated the idolatry of the land, spurning God's command to rid themselves of such filth. Their failure was so evident that even today, archaeologists in Israel still on occasion unearth the statuesque remains of Baal relatively intact. Evidence that Israel did not completely break down their altars as they were told to do in Judges 2 verse 2. They made no distinct separation, despite the fact that God had called them out to be separate. They'd been called to be set apart, to be holy unto the Lord. They were promised this land, and they were commanded to purge it. And by the way, this was not some haphazard, last-minute command on God's part. All the way back in Genesis 15, 16, God had promised Abraham this land, not for him, he said, but for his offspring. And God also had something to say regarding the wickedness of the people of that land. Regarding Abraham's offspring, God said, it says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Do you know what that means? It means that God was giving the people of the land of Canaan time before he judged their sin. They were getting progressively worse in the deepening of their depravity. But in his long-suffering, God gave them over 400 years before pouring out his wrath upon their sin, using Israel as the instrument of his judgment. But instead of being that instrument of God's judgment, Israel allowed Canaan to influence them. They became Canaanized, so to speak. They exchanged the glory of the living God for lifeless rocks. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator, as Romans 1 would later go on to say. And let me just say that whenever we exchange the glory of God for created things, we reveal where our trust lies. It's in the seen rather than in the unseen. In our own understanding rather than in God's wisdom. We become sensuous creatures who elevate other creaturely things to divine status. And when we do, we provoke the Lord to anger as any faithful spouse would be angered by the unfaithfulness of their beloved. One commentator has this to say. He says, God's people in our day have no revealed mandate to swing the actual sword of God's justice at contemporary pagans. But, he says, the principle remains We must remain and we must retain a distinct separation from our culture while mounting an active opposition to it, else we will blend with it. If we assume, he says, that Baal has a corner on farming and sex, then we have already given the crown rights of Jesus to Antichrist, end quote. We, in essence, distrust God when we trust ourselves to Antichrist. To the, to the world, which leads to the second step in the cycle of sin, which is domination by persons or things other than God, as we see in verse 14. It says in verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When we do not submit to God's dominion, His sovereign authority over our lives, we will be dominated by persons or things unworthy of such authority as we see with Israel here. And God is just in His judgment. He gave them exactly what they asked for. Now, they had no intention of reaping such severe consequences as none of us who make sinful decisions do but they reap those consequences all the same. For friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, as we read in James 4.4. Now, Israel wanted to be friendly with both. But just as a loving, faithful spouse cannot long tolerate an adulterous spouse, neither can God long tolerate adulterous idolatry. I want you to imagine for a second that if you found out that your husband or wife, your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance had done the same thing to you. Terrible to imagine, I know. You'd been a relatively faithful, devoted spouse. Sure, you're not perfect as God is, but attentive and you were tender towards him or her. And this is how he or she repays you. What would your reaction be? Do you kind of inconsequently accept it? Do you shrug and say, well, no one's perfect? If that were your only reaction, others would probably think that you didn't love your loved one all that much. No, you'd be upset. You'd be angry. You'd feel betrayed. And that is exactly how God feels about his people here. His anger is kindled. They went whoring after other gods, the passage later says. Even though God had been attentive and loving and devoted and faithful to them, they had prostituted themselves with and intimately trusted themselves to other gods. And God is rightly jealous. In fact, that is one of His names in Exodus 34:14. El Kanah. "You shall worship," he says, "No other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God." And he's jealous for good reason. He redeemed them. He brought them out out of captivity. Baal and Ashtaroth had done nothing constructive for them. In fact, Israel's people are being systematically deconstructed by elevating creaturely things to creator status. Their sin led them to be dominated by other persons or things. Does this sound familiar in your life? And it led them to this third step in the cycle of sin, which was distress for disobedience, as we see in verse 15. They could no longer withstand their enemies. They were entirely given over to the consequences of their sin. And verse 15 says, Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. Notice the futility Of their efforts. Notice your own futility when you go your own way. Just as it is true that if God is for us, who can be against us? So is the opposite true that if God is against us, well, then who can be for us? There's not a lowercase sovereign on earth who can stand up against the uppercase sovereignty of God. He'd warned them of the consequences of such a path in the curse motifs found in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. He iterated it, and He reiterated it for them. But they failed to heed these warnings, and they have been cursed as a result. Their strength, it says, spent in vain, God sending upon them confusion and frustration in all that they undertook to do. And the result, it says, and they were in terrible distress. Could it be that much of the anxiety, much of the depression, that our generation suffers from is due to the fact that we have succumbed to the cycle of sin. Now, please do not hear me say that as a blanket statement. Some of our godliest theologians and pastors throughout church history, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon among them, suffered from depression or anxiety. And let me just say that distress is not necessarily always a bad thing in and of itself. It's an indicator that something is wrong. It could be that you're so on track that demonic forces hound you, or it could be, as we see here, that you are reaping the consequences of a cycle of sin. Just as our bodies, when they're in pain, send messages to our brains to tell us something's wrong, so too does God allow us to be distressed when our spirits have forsaken him. And though Israel proves undeserving of mercy, as we all do, God hears them in their distress, which leads to the fourth and final step in the cycle of sin before that cycle begins anew, which is deliverance by God that is temporal in nature in verse 16. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And this sets the tone for the rest of this book. As God's people repeat this cycle of sin, distrust of God, domination by persons or things other than God, distress for disobedience and deliverance once again. But what's ironic, though, is that despite the fact that that we see no hint of repentance, God repeatedly delivered them anyway. This speaks to God's character, calling to mind one of the most repeated descriptions of God in the Old Testament first scene in Exodus 34 which reads the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty but they didn't listen and they continued to whore after other gods they are, in fact, in a turn or burn situation, but they can't seem to turn. As soon as God delivers them, they go right back to their sinful ways. Does this happen to you? How canonized have you become? Do you fall into this same cycle like the people in Jesus' parable of the sower, where the seed was sown among thorns, those of us who hear God's word, but we go on our way choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life? Oh, that we would hear the word, hold fast to it in a good and honest heart, bearing fruit with patience. These temporal deliverances throughout the cycle of sin and judges and throughout the Old Testament as a whole beg for an eternal deliverance once and for all. The truth is that none of the judges in this book, later commended for their faith in Hebrews 11, permanently delivered. In fact, the people show a declining devotion to God as the book continues until there's this turning point in chapter 10 where God gives them over saying, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. He gives them up. But not forever. Because there was another judge whom God raised up who once and for all decisively delivered his people. Jesus Christ The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the judge of judges, if you will. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful, according to Revelation 17, 14. Those who bow to Jesus do not suffer the deleterious effects of this cycle of sin. There's a better way. Instead of the cycle of sin, we have the straight and narrow of salvation. Now, if we were to simply reverse each of these steps in the cycle of sin... we would would see what, in fact, Christ has accomplished on our behalf in breaking this cycle of sin. Rather than distrust of God, we would trust Him and distrust the world system. Rather than suffer under the domination of other persons or things, we submit to the dominion of God. Rather than yield to distress, we might delight in obedience. Rather than experience deliverance by God that is temporal, we would enjoy deliverance that is eternal. Well, Let's look at each of those realities in turn quickly. Those who follow the straight and narrow path of salvation have a distrust of the world system, as we see in 1 John 2. Verses 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. As Demas was in love with this present world and deserted Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10, so too had Israel, in love with this present world, deserted God in Judges 2. And so we're warned in 1 John 2.17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We cannot trust ourselves to the world or to the things in this world. King Solomon knew the folly of such trust. In Ecclesiastes 2, he would looked for meaning in everything under the sun. From wine, women, worldly wisdom, and work. Only to come to the conclusion that all is vanity and a striving after the wind. In the end, the only meaning that he could find came at the end of the book in chapter 12, where he found to fear God and keep his commandments. Do not entrust yourself to the world, but to the God who made the world and all that's in it. So those who follow the straight and narrow path of salvation also submit to the dominion of God, as we see in Romans 6, verses 16 through 18, slaves of righteousness. And it's as simple as that. Slavery to sin leads to death. Slavery to God leads to righteousness. Peace and right standing. That's what God offers you. He offers you something the world could never offer you. Had Israel submitted to the dominion of God, they would have known, they would have experienced God's favor rather than be plundered by the Canaanites. They would have plundered them as they did the Egyptians when God brought them out of captivity. Those who follow the straight and narrow path of salvation, thirdly, delight in obedience as we see in Psalm 112 verses 1 through 3, which reads, "'Praise the Lord! Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed.'" Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Look what Israel gave up for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Rather than delight in his commandments, they distressed over his judgment. Rather than than being mighty in the land, they were plundered in the land. Rather than living uprightly, they lathered themselves in the filth of their sin to cry out for rinsing, only to repeat the error of their ways. Rather than experience the wealth and riches of God's house where God's righteousness endured forever, they experienced the poverty of their situation where this vicious cycle continued for an ungodly amount of time. Oh, that we would but praise the Lord and delight in his word and be spared the agony of all of this. Finally, those who follow the straight and narrow path of salvation also experience a deliverance by God that is eternal in nature, as we see in Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he says, meaning that because Jesus is a priest forever, because he made an everlasting sacrifice, unlike the temporal sacrifices of the priests in the Old Testament and God's people, the temporal deliverances that God's people experienced in Judges and throughout the Old Testament before they fell back into this cycle of sin. Consequently, Jesus, it says, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for his people. There will not be this continuous cycle of disbelief, domination by the world, distress, and temporal deliverance there will be eternal deliverance when we come to Christ. A saving to the uttermost, it says. Now, Baal and Asheroth never had much life to begin with. Your idols don't either. They will end up in scrap heaps, garbage piles, thrift stores, and graveyards. If the idols that Israel worshipped had any life at all, it was, according to Deuteronomy thirty-two seventeen demonic life at best. But it says here that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. The truth is that outside of Christ's intercession on our behalf, we will never be free from this cycle of sin, a cycle that continues down the road that leads to destruction. It will go on and on, promising but never delivering. It does offer fleeting pleasures but it leaves our heart, our hearts empty, anxious, and distressed. Jesus offers a better way on the straight and narrow path that leads to life eternal. Now this better way came at a great cost. The very life of the Son of God was required to purchase it. He died so that we would not have to. But thanks be to God that Jesus lives again. He conquered death. He conquered the grave in the cycle of sin being resurrected to new life, ascended to the Father in heaven, and he will one day return again to gather his people unto himself. Until that day, Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people.